Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, what's the zero trust journey at the Defense Department really about? Zero trust, as we look at network segmentation and fine grain access, it's about the data, protecting the data. And so that that capability is going to be absolutely critical. The search for input from more companies to secure the defense industrial base. We have a lot of good outreach mechanisms right now through NSA, through the Defense Cyber Crime Center, DC Free, through uh, Undersecretary for Policy and a lot of other different mechanisms, but we're still only getting to a subset of a much larger universe of companies. And the data future to come all across government. If I can make a prediction, Francis, I would say that, you know, 22, 23 is really going to be the age of the API. You know, that idea of bringing, you know, the power of bringing data together, but more importantly, providing that bigger picture to government. It's Tuesday, March 15th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast sponsored by Google Cloud. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The National Institute of Standards and Technology has new guidance on protecting unclassified information. Agencies can use the Assessing Enhanced Security Requirements for Controlled Unclassified Information Guide for assessments themselves or from outside parties. The guidance includes information for industry, too. The Central Intelligence Agency has a new chief information officer. Lanaya Jones is former deputy CIO of the National Security Agency and former information sharing and safeguarding executive at NSA. She also was acting CIO at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. You can read more on these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Decision makers from the Navy, the Jake Office at DOD, the State Department, and more agencies are coming to the Government Forum 2022. It'll be at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City, April 19th. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Defense Department's filling in its leadership for the Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office. Margaret Palmieri will be the Deputy CDAO. Lieutenant General Michael Groen will add the job of Senior Military Advisor to the CDAO to his Jake leadership duties. Greg Little will be Deputy CDAO for Enterprise Capabilities, and Katie Olson will be Deputy CDAO for Digital Services. John Sherman is the Chief Information Officer at the Department of Defense, and he is the acting leader of the CDAO. DAO office. John, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. What does the vision that you're fulfilling with these leadership uh, positions in CDAO look like as you're the acting leader of this job? Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you, Francis, and I'm really glad to be on with you today. The Chief Digital and AI Officer office is meant to create decision advantage for the Department of Defense, looking at how we collect and gather data, curate that data all the way to advanced analytics with AI, machine learning, and other capabilities, and also the digital services that are brought to bear with rapid software, uh, insertion and development, kind of a fire brigade that the DDS, Defense Digital Service, has brought to the fight, and now digital services, we're calling them, will be a part of the CDAO enterprise there. You've mentioned we have a number of new leaders we named here this past week. Margie Palmieri coming from the Navy and the others you noted. Our vision here is to create a team like we've had in CIO. We have the same as with we have deputy chief information officers. Now we have deputy chief digital and AI officers. You mentioned Ms. Olson for digital services. 
we have uh, Greg Little, who's led Advana, is going to be Enterprise Services. Uh, we've named Clark Cully, who has been the deputy CDO, is now going to lead our policy team. We have two more we're going to be naming soon in areas uh, we call it warfighter support will be one of them. Another will be acquisition. And so those will be named soon. And, of course, the biggest one is going to be the CDAO. I'm the acting right now. My job is to get this organization together, start to have these individuals and their folks, their teams, thinking as a unified organization, an end-to-end set of capabilities for decision advantage. That's what I've been doing here, bringing my my, my leadership uh, experience on this and being able to get all this together and then get ready for when that CDAO and who we should be naming here in the not too distant future. And I've actually met with the individual to be able to hand off the flag, so to speak. And so that person can run with this new leadership team and start creating that decision advantage for the Department of Defense. You use that term decision advantage twice, John. What decision advantage will you have, will the department have as a result of the stand-up of this office and the construct that you've created that you maybe didn't have before or didn't have as much of before or wasn't as organized as it was before or so on? Really being a data-led enterprise, tapping into all of the department's data and then leveraging that for really at-speed analytics to be able to give commanders, decision-makers, all the way from Secretary Austin to a combatant commander, to a leader in the field, a decision to stay really ahead of our pacing challenge of China. And we see a lot about Russia in the news too, and other near peer competitors like that, to stay in front of their decision loop, be able to think more quickly with better data, better information, to be able to stay ahead of them on the battlefield, but also not only on the battlefield, on things we do at the Department of Defense to support our women and men in uniform, whether it's healthcare, logistics, and everything else that makes a DOD run to unlock this capability. And that's what CDAO is going to bring to us. Well, and every uh, person that I talk to in uniform, whether they're uh, currently serving or retired, also talks about deterrence. And it sounds like a lot of the things that you're doing there are also feeding a deterrence effort too, John. It would be deterrence. It's just putting us on our front foot here to be able to, we have so much data and capability. And the Deputy Secretary of Defense Uh, Secretary Hicks signed out the data decrees, as they're known last year, really unlocking that data. I had the privilege to see some of this in action in the intelligence community a couple years ago, and we're seeing it at DOD at much more massive scale. I just uh, recently here, earlier this morning, saw an update from our teams who are supporting what's going on overseas right now in the UCOM area of operations, unlocking our data as we look at logistics, as we really give decision advantage there for US European Command and our joint staff and others to be able to do things that were highly manual are now much more automated to be able to provide General Walters and others decision advantage in this current crisis. What are the tools that you need, John, to underpin that data delivery, whether it's the cloud or some other tool, what do you have now and what do you need or need more of? I mean, I've been talking to your your predecessors all the way back to, I don't know, three or four generations ago, talking about these different things. It sounds like they change from time to time. And I wonder if they're changing as, as you focus on data to the degree that you've just described, whether the needs that underpin that have changed. 
So there's a number of capabilities we have right now that we're, we're going to be using to their fullest ability. Things like Advana, which Greg Little is headed, which is coming over to CDAO. What we have with the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, which is being, of course, absorbed into CDAO, where they have the Joint Common Foundation, where they a de development environment to be able to work AI algorithms. But bigger enterprise capabilities, I'm going to put my CIO hat on now, the Joint Warfighting Cloud capability, JWCC, where we're going to have multi-cloud capability across all three security fabrics, from CONUS all the way out to the tactical edge is a critical component of what the CDAO and that individual's organization is going to need. And then a few other areas are going to be critical too. Transport, uh, not as glamorous, but being able to move data terrestrially over SATCOM to be able to do this at speed out at the edge. Also cybersecurity. Remember, and we maybe talk about this in a minute, zero trust as we look at network segmentation and fine-grained access, it's about the data, protecting the data. And so that, that capability is going to be absolutely critical. And then very importantly, and I mentioned this earlier, on the software front, what we're doing with the software modernization strategy with DevSecOps, digital services within CDAO already lives this, but working with the broader enterprise, that's going to be a critical ingredient. There are probably many others I could get into, but those are some of the biggest ones I think are going to be important for CDAO going forward. Yeah, and it strikes me that that, that structure makes sense. Help me understand where that person lives, the person who will be the CDAO relative to you. Does that person report to you? Is that person your peer? Um, what does that structure look like? This individual will be a peer to me, another principal staff assistant to the Secretary of Defense, will not be a political, at least until if any, with any guidance from Congress on that point, but will be at the senior executive level as a peer to the CIO. And again, already having talked to the uh, likely candidate, we're going to be in each other's offices a lot. And there's going to be a close partnership there, and we will be participating together on everything from some of the budget processes to other governance bodies that the secretary and deputy secretary leads. We have got to be in very close formation on truly, as one of my bosses used to say, a, a virtuous cycle of innovation. What CDAO is doing will inform CIO and vice versa, and we have got to be working together for, for this modernization to succeed. How will you decide, not just you personally, but you as a department, decide in two, three, five, ten years that this construct has worked the way that you wanted it to work? What are the measures of success for the CDAO office, John? I would say in three years that we, working with the combatant commanders, uh, the o Office of Secretary of Defense, folks out in the field, out at the major commands, would look back and with examples like we're seeing, like I cited on the current European situation, would say, we could not have done this without the, the capabilities and insights that CDAO has brought to the fight. And it's not only just within CDAO. CDAO's job is to raise the waterline, so to speak, across all the military services and commands. There's so much innovation going on in the military services in areas like artificial intelligence, data, and so on, and also out at the commands too, to be able to, to get the best athlete, the best capabilities, rise it up to the enterprise level, and to really give that decision advantage to a combatant commander when she or he is testifying to Congress in a couple of years, say, I, we would not have been successful in this crisis had I not had the insights that were provided to me 
through what CDAO and the service and other capabilities brought to the fight. That's my measure of success on this. We've spoken horizontally so far about this office and its capabilities uh, in this conversation, John. What's the vertical uh, on this look like? How does this uh, office interact with the services on these same subjects? And how can it potentially influence the way that the services talk to each other horizontally, but a level down? And then I guess the same thing for your office. How does this affect, if at all, the way that your office interacts, for example, with Raj Iyer's office and Lauren Nausenberger's office and Aaron Weiss's office and so on? So right now we're already leveraging our military department CIO council that I routinely lead along with Dr. Kelly Fletcher, uh, principal deputy CIO, bringing in CDAO topics into that. Now there are also strong existing governance capabilities that CDO has started, that Jake has had some, but this is going to be one of these items as the CDAO gets on board. I want that individual to have robust governance, similar to what we have well-established in the CIO universe. And then moreover, where we bring the two governance bodies, as it were, at whatever appropriate level together, because it's not only at the the principal staff assistant level, we have sub bodies that work certain things like CISO, uh, chief information security officer activities. I would want them plugged in. Uh, some of the information enterprise activity that Ms. Danielle Metz leads tied in with what they're doing. So there's going to be all the different echelons, command control communications that Fred Moorfield leads on tran- looking at things like transport and SATCOM. So that's, these are, there are areas, Francis, to be stitched together, but we definitely have a vision of what this looks like. And I think we have a very solid template in CIO to help be a beacon to where CDAO should build towards in terms of governance. That was, you anticipated my next question, John, which is, it sounds like what you're going for is the construct that you have in CIO to be able to apply that template, I guess, is a good word for it to what's happening and what will happen in CDAO. Absolutely. But to a point where the CDAO, this individual will have their own ideas too. So we can provide a template, but I would certainly expect CDAO to evolve in maybe a much different way down the road as as they get their sea legs and they start doing what they need to do, because one could say they're a little further up the technology stack, so to speak, where where CIO is providing capabilities, cloud, transport, cybersecurity, uh, leading software development and coordinating that, whereas they're going to be doing much different things in terms of the very advanced analytics how we continue to unlock the data. So that may lead to different types of governance. I'm not sure, but we can sure give them a good foundation to build off of with what we have in CIO. All right, stand by, John. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. On Wednesday's show, the IT transformation landscape at the Office of Personnel Management. It's a target-rich environment. The Chief Information Officer at OPM, Guy Cavallo, is on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast. That show debuts Wednesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. More now with John Sherman, the CIO at DOD. You mentioned JWCC a few minutes ago, John, and uh, one of the things that I think surprised people when we learned about that was that the oversight of that, the managing of that would move from OCIO to DISA. Um, Speaking as broadly about the enterprise in general or specifically about that project uh, as you would choose, how do you and your colleagues at DISA determine basically who does what, I guess, is the best way to put it, who, where the right spot is 
for various projects like that. So we see DISA, part of the CIO family, of course, with General Skinner and all his folks. They are our execution arm. They are the ones that go out and execute contracts and major activities and initiatives of all sizes. We in CIO provide, first and foremost, the leadership, the governance, the standards, the strategy, the oversight. And I know at times that that line has varied. And you mentioned back when uh, some of the enterprise cloud was more led out of CIO. We made the decision to move it to DISA because of the oversight of the actual procurement that's going on right now and when it does get stood up to run it. Now, within CIO, we do provide the oversight, the connection to OSD here, working with the other stakeholders in acquisition and sustainment and Washington Headquarters Services and, <clears throat> excuse me, and other folks that are helping us uh, move out with this procurement here. That's our job here, and there's not some bright line of of not talking and, and not working together. But DESTA has the, the nexus for the execution of this with us providing the oversight and strategic direction. Makes sense to me, and I like where we're heading on this right now. Ed, one of the things that struck me, and uh, this was probably four or five years ago, so it predates your tenure in the Department of Defense, uh, a very high-level DISA leader uh, talked to me at an event I was moderating and uh, right about the time that contract was let. And I said, what uh, did uh, OSD, what did OCIO ask you about that contract? And that person said, I never heard from them. Didn't know anything about what the process was. And so it, I think it's very insightful that wherever it lives, it sounds like the dialogue between you and your office and DISA and the leadership there is much tighter, much more integrated than it used to be. Absolutely. And this one thing I have to say, Secretary Austin implores all of us or guides all of us to over-communicate, particularly in crisis situations, but in any situation. I always want to be an inclusive leader, uh, someone who taps into the full range of, of expertise. And again, DISA is our focal point for this. And General Skinner and I, I can't tell you how many times a day we talk. Again, he is our operational leader. Sometimes little brush fires that need to be put out all the way to very big, big flagship activities like JWCC. So yes, the communication also with our deputy CIOs, working a range of issues and working with General Skinner, Chris Barnhurst and the team there. I really appreciate how well the team works together. Yeah, I was curious how far down that goes, because it's certainly important for, for example, you and General Skinner at your level to have that open line of dialogue. But it strikes me it's also important the next level, two, three, four, all the way down um, vertically in these organizations for both of you to be communicating on on all levels, right? It does. And I'll uh, name, we have a relatively new deputy CIO, Dr. Cynthia Mendoza, who worked with me in the intelligence community several times. She's our deputy CIO for special access program, IT, and networks, working very closely with uh, down a couple echelons with General Skinner's team, Don Means and Larry Kuster and uh, Kluster, excuse me, and many of their folks on as we modernize our SAP IT. Of course, I can't get into a lot of details, but that's an area where 
we've needed to put some more attention. And I'll, uh, the other thing I'll tell you, Francis, is a lot of robust back and forth. It's not all hugs all the time, but we can <laughs> we can have a good programmatically driven discussion. Look at poems. Look at look at execution schedules, but be friends afterwards. And I think that's the role of a of a OSD an, an OSD PSA level organization working with a field organization, uh, execution arm like this. So that's what we have to do and uh, be able to have very candid, honest discussions. And we're doing that on a range of areas. There are two areas of cybersecurity. You've mentioned cyber a couple of times so far in our conversation, John, and there are two areas in particular I want to ask you about. One is internal, the way that you're implementing, executing cybersecurity in the organization, workforce and all of that. And then there's the defense industrial base. Let's start with the internal stuff. Where are you as far as the people that you need? Because CIOs tell me over and over again, the biggest problem is not policy and governance or the process. It's the people. Where are you with the workforce that you need to execute for the department? And what is your strategy to try to make sure that you get and keep the people that you need to keep the department secure? So talking broadly about the department, about not only, I would say, the cyber workforce, but it's really the digital in, uh, digital workforce, or really even more broadly, the innovation workforce. But on cyber and cybersecurity issues, this is one area we've really been leaning in here. We have a number of new policy, or it's a policy series called 8140 that started before I got here, but this gets into the nitty gritty of what we need to be doing with our workforce. We have the Defense Cyber Workforce Framework. That's a little bit of a mouthful, but that lets us inventory how many humans we have aligned against which skill set areas, and then allows us to execute on things like cyber accepted service. If we need to ramp up some hiring in some areas with incentives, and maybe know that we're doing better in other areas, and then working with the NSA, for example, on some of their scholarship programs. When I even when I was the acting last year, I started to commission a new cyber workforce strategy. And now that I'm back uh, as a confirmed individual, get it, overseeing that that new strategy, which will come out later this year. In terms, Francis, of how we look at how we hire, use all the authorities we have, but think differently about hiring, retaining, reskilling. I've said this often that I don't know if we're going to have data scientists and cybersecurity professionals and coders here for 30 years. Maybe some will, but we've got to think differently about the interplay with industry, about how we think about getting folks in here for a couple of years and then they go out and maybe come back without our security folks' head exploding when they have to come back in here and think and really get to a whole of nation approach. I really mean it when I say that we've got to tap into all of the resources in the most diverse way we can, a whole of nation approach uh, and, and think differently about uh, where we recruit, how we recruit, and this is what we're going to get after with this new workforce strategy. So to answer your question, I think we're in a good place. We could always be better, and it's going to get increasingly competitive, so we can't rest on our laurels. Well, and to your point, John, about people coming in maybe and not staying for 30 years, um, a, a chief human capital officer at a civilian agency told me recently, <laughs> we might not want cyber professionals and data professionals come in and stay for 30 years. We might want them to be here for a term go someplace to private industry and come back to the government with different skills that they couldn't or wouldn't have learned in the position that they were in if they came in and were on a defined traditional government career track. Is that kind of the way that you're approaching the cybersecurity strategy, the workforce strategy at DOD too? 
It is. And again, this is going to cause some evolution here on how we look at government hiring and how we look at reinvestigations with people with clearances. So this isn't going to happen overnight, but it's at our peril if we don't adapt to this sort of environment here, both because of the the technical recertifications and re and education and experiences people will get going outside of government, but also just how people think about their careers now. That again, some folks may want to do a multi-decade government career, but to be able to have these enriching experiences of coming from DC and then going to Silicon Valley or Austin or North Carolina or anywhere in between and getting those experiences and then us bringing them back in um, maybe not only as a technical expert, by that time as a manager, somebody who's led bigger projects, I think it is incumbent on our success in the department. And again, as I said, not only for cyber, but all digital work areas here, I think we're going to have to think differently about this. You use the word certification, and that takes me to the other cyber point I wanted to ask yeah. you about, and that's the defense industrial base. Um, certification is one of the C's in the cybersecurity maturity model certification. A lot of questions in industry about what that will look like. Give me the broad construct first of how you see your office or the department broadly interacting with the defense industrial base regarding cyber to get to the goal that we all have, which is that the two organizations can share information securely, John. That's a great question because cyber maturity model certification, CMMC, which gets a lot of the media attention, is one key part of this, but not the only part. There are 220,000 roughly DIB members all across this amazing country here, from very small companies to some of the very largest companies, the names of which we had all recognize. We have a lot of good outreach mechanisms right now through NSA, through the Defense Cyber Crime Center, DC3, through uh, uh, Undersecretary for Policy and a lot of other different mechanisms, but we're still only getting to a subset of a much larger universe of companies. Our vision is to get to a place to where we can have regular dialogue, communications, be able to work with our interagency partner, partners such as at CISA to be able to proactively get out alerts on things and have a dialogue with these companies. Dave McEwen, our Chief Information Security Officer, who's really helping lead a lot of this within CIO, has a number of large digital town halls, for example, with companies and other cybersecurity stakeholders on this. But we're just scratching the surface, surface on this, Francis. We got to do much better, I think. And this is something I personally want to do as CIO is get out on the road, hear from different companies, and not only the quote-unquote bigs, but those companies that really form the backbone of our economy, who may have 100 or fewer employees, who are doing a critical thing on a weapon system, some subcomponent that'll go to something bigger, because that's where the avenue of attack could be for sophisticated cyber actors. That, to me, is the vision for securing the defense industrial base in a way that's not onerous to those smaller and medium-sized companies, but in a way that really does get us ready for a very intense threat environment in which we live. In the interaction that you've had with those companies, large and small so far, what have you learned, if anything, that has changed the way that you think about what whatever the system is, whatever the letters are that are attached to it, should look like and how it should work? And what do you want to learn or hope to learn with the interaction that you haven't had yet, but that you intend to from the way you just described, John? 
So the whole CMMC 2.0 effort that was launched when I was going through confirmation, so I wasn't involved specifically, but now responsible for moving out on it. A lot of that was based on direct feedback going, excuse me, from the five levels to the three, looking at how it, it, not to simplify may not be the right word, but to try to streamline based on lessons learned that we had. What I've been learning personally, as I get out on the speaking circuit, I talk to individuals, for example, about the amount of controlled unclassified information or CUI that's being stamped on certain proposals and so on that are being used and what that encumbers the companies to have to, as as we move forward on CMMC, what that means for them. I've also learned on some of the verbiage I use the NIST 800-171, I've said, is basic cybersecurity. Now, I've heard from some folks say, that's not really basic. It, that's a heavy lift for companies. So let me, I'm going to readjust on that. It is necessary. It's like on the modern battlefield now, as we have new types of countermeasures for armored vehicles and our soldiers in the field, it's basic. They better have all counter drone capabilities and counter anti-tank guided missile capabilities but that's what they need to survive on the modern battlefield. That's what NIST 800-171 is to protect the CUI data that is exactly what our enemies want to get after to be able to put our weapon systems at risk. So I'm learning not only about some of the processes, but also trying to see it through their eyes, the company's eyes. But what we're not going to also necessarily step back on is the imperative to get this done. We are in a high threat cyber environment. So we've got to get this right, but also want to make sure I'm using the right terminology and also listening as I'm getting out there. So that's some of what we're doing as we progress on this. John, my final question, and I ask this not hoping or implying or suggesting that this will happen anytime soon, but how will you judge your success when it comes time for you to hand your CIO office off to someone else, how would you personally evaluate whether you moved the direct, the office and the department in the direction that you wanted to, and whether you considered your time as CIO a success? At the highest level, it gets to, we talked about CDAO, but really the decision advantage really can apply for CIO too. As we do things like strengthen our cybersecurity, make the make our domains more secure, as we do things like deploy multi-cloud enterprise capabilities, as we make our transport more resilient, as we move into areas like 5G and NextG, we strengthen our position navigation and timing. So maybe not only decision advantage, but war fighting advantage, an advantage not only for the tip of the spear, but how the department executes its mission. So there's a multitude of digital modernization activities, but I think at its highest level, when I maybe am, my hair's a little grayer than it is now, and it's already getting pretty gray and silver, I'll say. And I'm, you know, maybe down in Texas with my wife as we're retired, and I run into a retired combatant commander, and she or he says, those things you did for Indo-PACOM or UCOM or name your other command, that made all the difference. That's when I'm going to know we were successful and also the folks who came after me were able to carry it on. That's where I'm going to look at it. John Sherman, the Chief Information Officer at the Defense Department. It's great to talk to you today. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Francis. It's been an honor to be with you today. You can read more about all the things I covered with John in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it.
The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is the latest federal government organization to lay out its back-to-the-office plan. Most CISA employees will report to their offices at least twice per pay period. Alexis Bunnell is Emerging Technology Evangelist at Google Cloud. Google Cloud sponsors today's Daily Scoop podcast. She's former Chief Innovation Officer at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Alexis, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. One issue that Chico's and other leaders across government are talking about all the time is how you bring these people back together in a hybrid environment. Some people are going to be out Monday and Wednesday, and some people are going to be out every Monday, and it's going to be different for everyone in some of these offices. You used the term last time we talked, connective tissue, about how you put all these people together and make them feel uh, a part of what's going on. What does that connective tissue look like to you moving forward? Welcome, Alexis. Thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because one of my first uh, jobs at USAID was actually also as the telework executive, and that was more than 10 years ago. And so I'm so excited actually to see us at this point of hybrid work, right? Really, because it's about being able to, you know, let people have that work-life balance, but also to be incredibly productive, you know, a in, in any environment. And so I think when we think about connective tissue, you know, that includes things like people, process technologies, and how you bring those together. And really, this is such an exciting age, you know, not only because the cultural shift and, and what we're seeing is actually bringing, you know, people greater autonomy and empowerment in their work, um, but also then having those moments of connectivity in the office, right? One of the things we see at Google is that some of the most brilliant moments are those kind of bump into you moments in the cafe where you're sharing information. So really finding that right balance. But I think, you know, finding that autonomy, but also really enabling people to work remotely. And most importantly, you know, to have the technology to allow them to thrive while doing it. And I think, you know, there's a few things leaders are going to need to think about as they navigate this hybrid work era. And I'll give maybe just three examples. You know, I think the first is really thinking about those tools that empower, you know, that, that hybrid work, but really that collaboration that allow your kind of present people, your future people, that interoperability, really to let workers use tools they're comfortable with, and maybe not only what the agency has always used. One of the examples I loved um, that I thought was done really well at USAID is when they started to introduce the ability for someone, for example, to use an Apple or a PC or a Chromebook, really based on their productivity preference. And I think the same is going to be true in communications and productivity tools, uh, things like office and workspace being interoperable. I think you're going to see more more workers wanting to use the same tools they use in their personal lives and their professional ones while maintaining security. So I think it's not just that moment of hybrid work. I think it's really how the tools complement that. I think the second, when you think about the power of hybrid work, is really the idea of bringing data together. And if I can make a prediction, Francis, I would say that, you know, 22, 23 is really going to be the age of the API. You know, that idea of bringing, you know, the power of bringing data together, but more importantly, providing that bigger picture to government. So that could be overlaying a social equity data flow with a traditional program data flow to understand, you know, where they might have an underserved population, or simply bringing in data flow from one HR system into a new one that helps track health and safety measures, as an example. And But really, the idea is the more sense we can make of the more data, the more we all benefit. And the third one that I think is going to be really interesting is this opportunity to move maybe from a perception of shadow IT, if you will, to actually intentionally empowering kind of technology democratization 
if you will, across organizations. And what I mean by that is, you know, great tools like low code or no code apps, uh, for example, that we use like AppSheet, they're really helping people like me, non-technologists, you know, add things like automation and efficiency to their work. And Francis, I have to admit, I do not know how to write a single line of code, but I can use a no code technology to create a way to read and collect data from a document attachment in an email, for example, to auto-populate a spreadsheet. Or I could map my whole office and set up seat sharing, right, at a time of hybrid work. I can even program an AI model in less than two minutes without being a data scientist or writing a line of code. So I think when we think about hybrid work, it's not just where am I physically, it's what can I do now? You know, what really are these more accessible technologies meaning and how I can unleash my curiosity? how I can lean in and enhance my productivity, and most importantly, how I can drive my mission in ways I never could before. So the core of all of those three points that you highlight, Alexis, in my opinion, is resilience. And you're talking about the way to build more resilience into an organization. And the last time we talked, you used the term living systems leadership as a way to get to that resilient point that agencies need to be at, not just for March, April, May of 2022, but for 2025 and for the next time there's something disruptive like a pandemic or some mm -hmm. other issue, yep. you know, this is the concept, the, the, the name that you gave that concept. What does that concept mean and how does that tie into what we've already discussed? Yeah, absolutely. I, I really think that it is such an interesting time. And, you know, you often hear the saying, you know, the only change, you know, you know, change is the only constant. But to your point, looking around the world today, that that rings true, right? From the war in Ukraine to the pandemic, to the evolving nature of what it means to be in the office. You know, really public sector leaders are finding themselves navigating a huge number of internal and external challenges. And I think what's interesting is that this is really the time to embrace transformation. And when I say that, I don't just mean in digital or organizational transformation, but leadership transformation. You know, we really can't expect to lead the same way we did two years ago. And if you add to that the fact that we face these transitions, we're spending more than ever really in hopes of gaining that resilience, that flexibility that government needs to accomplish their mission today and prepare for tomorrow's challenges and opportunities. And that's where living system leadership came in. And really, you know, what it is, it, living system leadership helps answer the question of the day for leaders. And that question I think really is, how do I address today's day-to-day -day issues while also addressing the future needs of the agency. And I think, you know, many leaders are looking to technology, including AI, big data, data insights, but how do they ensure those investments have the right generational consequences? And I think that's really important. And so what Living Systems is, is really about that intentionality, the ability to, to you know, ready your organization to navigate change. And I think as leaders, Often in transformation efforts, we ask ourselves what the right solution is, right? What's the right model or process that we can su successfully implement? And then we put it on autopilot, right? Because if it's, if it's the right one, it's going to last forever. And I think the reality is we know that that's not true, right? And so living system leaders re recognize that there's no longer a simple kind of steady state solution. They recognize that their role and the organization's role will be to navigate a shifting environment, whether those are societal shifts customer expectation shifts, budget, legislation, or even new technology shifts. And where I have so much empathy, Francis, is the fact that 
you know, these shifts used to occur gradually over time, a hundred year cycle, 50 year cycle, 10 year cycle. And we're really now in a two to three year cycle. And it's critical for government to adapt to that. And so to give you some examples about how living system leaders maybe behave differently, it's really about demanding more from themselves from their teams. And so, for example, their teams, you know, are really looking for more autonomy, mastery and purpose. These uh, groups have to have more flexibility, to your point, more resilience, but also more curiosity. But Francis, I think what's really exciting is also this idea that they have an opportunity to, to demand and expect more from their partners, their implementers and their vendors. And so what I mean by that is if you're a living systems leader and you're really thinking about being change ready, you have to think about and value things like interoperability, portability, carbon neutrality, you know, new fiscal models that give you both flexibility and certainty, certainty, excuse me, and, and refusing things like vendor lock-ins. And I think what I'm excited about is, you know, the opportunity that we had at Google to get together and to really ask ourselves, what do we have to do different as a tech partner to set public leaders up to be a position of really leaders that thrive in living systems and being living systems leaders? And so I think in addition to these ideas of supporting interoperability, portability, carbon neutrality, those things I mentioned, it also means doubling down on making our decades worth of zero trust experience available to government. And obviously I would say that couldn't come at a better time, but it might also take the form of championing multi-cloud and APIs. You know, we really think living systems leaders should continue to use some of the legacy systems and APIs can really help you extend the life out of the legacy systems you have while still allowing agencies to adapt to new technologies. Things like Doc AI or call center AI or GIS translation, you know, those all allow government to provide more excellent customer experiences. And I know I've droned on because I'm so excited about living system leaders and just all of the amazing public servants that we've seen model this behavior. But I think the final one I have to mention is curiosity. And that's the real heartbeat of living systems leaders, the ability to be data-driven decision makers and information stewards in an information age. And so living system leaders are really looking to be proactive not reactive. They want to lean in. They want to ask what if. They want to run scenarios. They want to model potential situations. And generally, they want to be future ready. And I think that's what's so exciting about our tech and where it is right now is really the ability to have, you know, for lack of a better term, real what if machines at your fingertips. Alexis, you're supposed to be excited about this stuff. You're an emerging technology evangelist. <laughs> you're supposed to Tell people why it's all great, which you did quite effectively. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The CIO at OPM is on tomorrow's show. Guy Cavallo is here. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.